Hello and welcome back to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. In the past few weeks, much of the world's been entering its second year of the COVID-19 pandemic, taking stock of all that's been lost, but also looking forward to what we might soon regain, meeting with friends, being happy as part of a crowd, hugs. In a few minutes, we're going to hear what the world looks like right now to Bloomberg correspondents dotted around the world in Brazil, Canada, Mauritius and Moscow. The economist and author Dambisa Moyo is also going to tell me how things look from her perch on the board of two major global companies. But first, we surely have to talk about the Suez Canal. Now, regular listeners of Stephanomics will know we have a fascination with the basic plumbing of the global economy and especially container ships. This is usually a minority sport, but in the past couple of weeks, the whole world has been getting into the subject thanks to the Ever Given, that massive container ship which got stuck on the Suez Canal. It was longer than the Eiffel Tower and weighed 220,000 tonnes. It was freed eventually this week, but not before causing a massive traffic jam on the most important strip of water on the planet. Our chief energy correspondent, Javier Blas, understood better than most what was at stake in this snarl-up. He's with me now. Javier, let's start with a quick update. The ship's been freed, but how long will we be living with the after-effects? It's going to take a few days, Stephanie, to clear. Uh, there are about 400 vessels waiting on both sides, north and south of the canal, and a few, actually, they were trapped inside the, the canal on what we call the bitter lakes. Um, it's just probably going to take a good week before things go back to normal because the Egyptian authorities, first of all, they need to clear all that backlog and then also deal with the, the, the usual 50 to 60 vessels a day that, that, that call onto the Suez Canal to, to transit. So it's not just clearing the, the, the accumulated number of vessels, it's also just starting to allow passage of the of the vessels that regularly cross. So I will think that things will get normal by the middle of April. That's probably the, the, the easiest. And I and I suspect that the authorities are gonna be a bit more cautious, particularly we have a strong winds which are seasonally strong this time of the year in, in, in that part of, of of the canal. They, they they don't want certainly to see another vessel running aground. So I think that they're gonna be extremely cautious. Well, I was surprised looking at uh, one of your articles about this, and I, you certainly pointed up about the the weather that the wind is it quite ha- happens quite a lot that you get that kind of wind. But I was struck by how difficult it sounded to actually go through the Suez Canal. You think it would be something that pilots in, of these ships would be quite relaxed about, but they, they were saying it's it's pretty difficult every time. It's quite deceiving because you see, and 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 it looks quite. Quite easy, uh, a strip of desert on both sides of the canal, a, 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 a channel of water, and, and, and it's not open sea, it's a canal, so it's, it's almost like a pond. So you think, what could go wrong? Well, many things go wrong. I mean, it's very narrow. Um, the deepest part of the canal, which is the, the part that these vessels and the big oil tankers need, is about 200 meters uh, only wide. And these vessels are about 50 to 60 meters wide. So there is not a lot of, not a lot of room of maneuver. To, to make a mistake. So uh, a distraction, a human error, uh, a strong uh, push of the wind. Uh, and then is also the fact that in the case of the Ever Given was not using uh, an escort tugboat, 
which is normal for vessels of that size. We don't know why uh, was not uh, it was not a legal requirement by the canal, but but we know that the two vessels in front of the Ever Given were using one, and probably if a tugboat had been there, uh, it will have been most likely able to prevent the accident or at least minimize the the grounding of the Ever Given. Um, but yes, I spoke to several captains who have crossed the, the Suez Canal many, many, many times, and they say that it's quite deceiving and it can be quite tricky. Mm. And should we be surprised that it doesn't happen more often? I mean, this feels like the first time it's happened in a long time. It is actually the longest uh, closure of the canal since the Six-Day War in 1967. At that time, the canal was closed for eight years. In mind, in the world of today, if we have to face an eight-year closure of the of the uh, of the Suez Canal, I mean, certainly we could say goodbye to to click on Amazon.com and getting a, a a shipment the following day with whatever we wanted. So you mentioned Amazon. I mean, this is one of those things that once caught short. You know that we, there's this disconnect in the global economy that seems more and more stark between you know we live in this kind of cyber age, one-touch internet shopping on the one hand, but we're still also living still in the age of ships and crates and cranes, uh, and that the two are very much reliant on one another. Yes, the, the reminder of the of, of the events of recent days of the canal have been that still the world needs uh, physical goods, and those goods, whether they are commodities or they are, are consumer goods that are transported in a container, they need to be shipped over great distances, and that is mostly done by 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 sea, and that requires an enormous infrastructure that we often take for granted. It needs a functioning ports in China and and the workshops of of Asia. It needs functioning shipping lines. It needs obviously the Suez Canal, and it needs also ports and custom officials able to clear all this uh, enormous amount of traffic uh, that is coming into the consumer countries in the West, whether it's Europe or the United States, Canada, etc., etc. And and that infrastructure, we take it for granted, but a lot of it, it creates choke points. It's not just uh, the Suez Canal. There are other geographical points like the Strait of Malacca or pipelines for oil or ports that they really are essential for the global economy. And, and a problem there, and all of a sudden that kind of new economy that we have got used to, particularly in this last year of the pandemic, where we can buy everything online, will will suffer and it will become impossible to sustain. It is interesting, though, because the Suez Canal has, what's going through the Suez Canal has changed a lot in the last few decades, even though it continues to be remarkably important for world trade. Uh, and that's something I guess you're particularly attuned to uh, because you're normally focused on the energy and, and, and commodities. Well, yeah, for me, uh, if this crisis had happened 20 years ago, the big impact would have not been on the container market. It will have been on the oil market. We have we will have seen oil prices spiking because it was the time where the Suez Canal was the main waterway to send the Middle East oil into the consuming markets of Europe and particularly the United States. Today, that oil doesn't need the canal because it goes to the east, it goes to India, it goes to China. So, um, the, 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 and the market, remarkably, we are still on the oil market. We talk about east and west of Suez. 
as the kind of the geographical split of the market. Uh, many traders specialized on ease of sweat market. And that market was for many years a bit of a residual market. There was a big demand of Japan and South Korea, but that was about it. Today, really the demand is on the ease, so the oil doesn't need the canal. But over the last couple of decades, the canal has become more and more important for the transit of containers transporting goods that are produced in China and other countries in Asia into the consumer markets in Europe and into, into uh, uh, the Americas. But it's still very important uh, for certain commodities. I mean, one of our biggest concerns of the commodities team over the last few days was whether the coffee supply, which is something that I care <laughs> quite a lot because <laughs> I do like my Ethiopian coffee every morning. And, and, and coffee is transported by container and mostly from East Africa into the Suez Canal, into the coffee roasters of uh, Netherlands in particular, and then to the consumers in Europe. So one of the consequences of the closure of the Suez Canal will have been that uh, my, my morning coffee will have been seriously disrupted, and potentially also tea, which is transported the very same way. That could have been completely disastrous. Well, you have, you've written a fantastic book with your colleague uh, Jack Farci about the world of commodity trading, the world for sale. Uh, it's called. And apart from just giving it a plug, uh, I, would, I did wonder whether the reporting for that book and your reporting generally um, meant that you're aware of other sort of real vulnerabilities within the global economy that we might not think about now, but we could overnight suddenly realise their importance. Well, the Swift Canal was one of those places where we have seen a lot of a lot of the biggest commodity traders of, of, of this world of today, you think about names like Beetle, which is the world's largest oil trader, or Cargill, the world's largest agricultural trader, they made money over the years at times because supply disruptions link to the Suez Canal. I mean, when there was war in the Middle East, there was an opportunity because there were always the threat of closure of the Suez Canal, and for these traders was essential. But yeah, to me, what really reminds... Uh, the, the Suez Canal and, and researching about the role of the commodity traders is that this world of today still requires an enormous amount of physical goods, most of them commodities, and those those goods need to be transported physically, and that relies on pipelines, on ports, on export terminals. There's physical assets that they are vulnerable to any kind of disruption. It could be weather. We recently saw coal prices in Australia jumping just because it was the, the strongest rains in a hundred years in that particular region of Australia. Recently, we saw uh, a drone attack by Yemeni rebel Houthis into the Rastanura terminal in Saudi Arabia. That is potentially the most important real estate piece uh, in the oil industry. That's the terminal where Saudi Arabia export most of his oil. If that was attacked and destroyed, we will lose about 10% of global oil supply. And it's a good reminder at times that a lot of the things that we take for granted rely on physical infrastructure that could fail. And in an economy that is today more globalized and more just in time, where companies carry fewer and fewer inventories, it makes the world really suffer a lot if that long supply chain of just-in-time commodities and goods gets disrupted. And of course, one of the things that did disrupt that in a big way a year ago was the pandemic. And we've been been living with the with the trade consequences and the queues of container ships, along with 
uh, all of the economic and the and the public health consequences. Well, Javier, I suspect we could have a conversation about what in what specifically are the most vulnerable points of uh, the U.S. economy. We might get in trouble for that. I'd be giving too much away. Um, so we will uh, we will leave it there. But thank you very much. Thank you. Now back to the pandemic. We asked Bloomberg economic reporters around the world to tell us what the world looked like to them after a year of living with COVID-19. Here they are, our postcards from a pandemic, starting, of course, on the beach. The world-famous Copacabana Beach is unusually quiet. I come here for sun, people watching, and cocktails. But like in most of Brazil, the party's been shut down. Lockdowns are being reinstated to fight a second wave of the coronavirus. They're the latest measures to try and contain one of the world's worst outbreaks. And they're a sign that, after a year of pandemic, a health and fiscal crisis is spiraling out of control. Last week, Brazil became only the second country to top 300,000 coronavirus deaths. Brazilians are increasingly blaming President Jair Bolsonaro. Critics say he tried to put jobs over lives. Since the onset of the pandemic, he's played down the virus and fought restrictions, while his government pushed through one of the world's largest stimulus packages last year. It was an all-out effort to keep the economy rolling, but it may have backfired. The problem is that far less effort went into actually containing the pandemic. Now the health system is being pushed to the brink by contagious new strains of the virus, while the government scrambles to supply vaccines. That stashing hopes of a speedy recovery. The central bank recently hiked interest rates, the most in more than a decade, to help ease investor fears as more aid is being dispersed. The worry goes beyond just rising inflation in Brazil's shaky public finances. Hundreds of Brazil's top businessmen and economists recently signed a letter warning that the recession won't end until the pandemic is controlled. Bolsonaro seems to be feeling the heat. Boa noite. Estamos no momento de uma nova variante do coronavírus. After spending a year voicing doubts about medical advice and vaccines, he pulled a U-turn in a national address last month declaring that 2021 would be the year of the vaccine and promising that life would return to normal soon. Many were unconvinced. Across big cities, pots and pens clanged in a form of protest here called a panelazo. I had heard a few since arriving to Rio, but none as loud as this one. Bolsonaro seems to be trying to change course, and he just resuffled his cabinet. Still, if he doesn't turn things around, we'll likely be hearing a lot more of this. In Rio de Janeiro, I'm Andrew Rosati. Here, on the Indian Ocean island of Mauritius, the situation is almost identical to a year ago. Last year, we were in a complete lockdown to stop the propagation of the coronavirus in this country of 1.3 million people. Now, we are struggling through a second one. New cases are coming in tense. There are fears and choices to make. Do we need a partial reopening of non-essential businesses like hairdressers? Or should the government impose a very strict lockdown and sanitary curfew? There are no clear answers, but from today, non-essential economic activities, including fast food, are scheduled 
to be accessible again. While we debate the ifs and whatnots of COVID-19, the finance ministry is facing a daunting task. Can you imagine? Public sector debt has soared to 85% of gross domestic product, far higher than the 60% level required by institutions like the International Monetary Fund. But this is the problem of the Treasury's own making. When the pandemic hit our economy, we knew what could happen. With tourism of a flagship industry being brought to a standstill, massive layoffs would be inevitable. One estimate was 400,000 job losses, a huge number in this relatively small nation that risked economic and social turmoil. Hence, the choice was made to support companies and the economy through a wage assistance scheme. Already coping with low revenue, the Treasury paid part of the wages of the private sector. When the first confinement was lifted last year, most of us rushed to spend money accrued in our accounts. But after that initial adrenaline rush of shopping, we became more cautious in spending as the economy was still wobbly with only uncertainty in sight. Now we are in a second lockdown and the tourism industry is still on life support. The government has disbursed about $75 million with more money expected. But this time, we don't expect the prolonged generosity from the government that other countries are seeing. Even as Mauritius tries to claw its way out of its biggest slop in 40 years, the Treasury is already trying to cut spending. Now, the money needs to be spent in a way that will help this island economy onto the path of recovery. And such a path, as all Mauritians would agree, is still a distant line. We are far from herd immunity and vaccines are getting scarce on the world market. But we are playing on our diplomatic ties with India, China, Russia. If not, just like 2020, our confinement will be lengthened and there will be more cattle on our beach than people. A knife in the heart for our tourism-reliant economy. In Mauritius, I'm Kamresh Bokori. Since the earliest days of the pandemic, Canadians were looking at the U.S. with shock at how the pandemic was unfolding there. The U.S. was seeing an explosion of COVID cases and deaths and hospitals were getting overrun, while Canada at the time was able to keep its case counts relatively low last spring and throughout the summer. But it's now been more than a year into the pandemic and parts of it, Canada are experiencing a third wave, which is threatening even more lockdowns. While south of the border in the U.S., many states have reopened and vaccine rollouts are accelerating. So in a way, Canadians have gone from looking at the U.S. with complete horror to now looking south and seeing their counterparts being able to get vaccinated and able to enjoy activities that some Canadians still can't, like eating inside a restaurant or going to a yoga class. I've been able to witness this change in the tone of Canadians from being accepting of the lockdowns in the beginning to now feeling frustration around the government's policies and how they have not been able to figure out a way to reopen safely. I actually returned to Texas where my family lives during the holidays uh, around in December 
And that was around the time when Canada's most populous provinces, Ontario and Quebec, were experiencing a second wave of virus cases, and they decided to shut everything down again for more than a month. So the restrictions were even tighter than what they experienced last spring. In Texas, while I was there, the governor announced everything could return to 100% capacity, and they ended the mask mandate. While there in Ontario, you couldn't go inside a non-essential store. So certainly Canada's tighter restrictions have meant a better health outcome, even though they have been less restrictive on people's personal freedoms. Canada has had fewer deaths and case counts per million people than the U.S., but it's clear there have been economic trade-offs. So last year, the U.S. economy outperformed Canada's, contracting only 3.5%, whereas Canada's economy contracted by 5.4%. And Canada is expected to continue underperforming this year because it does have a slower vaccine rollout. There is lower natural immunity in Canada. Fewer people have been exposed to the virus, so there's more chance of the third wave and future waves than in the U.S. And Canada has not deployed as much fiscal stimulus as we have seen in the U.S., Now, in recent months, Canada's government has deployed a series of measures to curb the spread of COVID and its variants, as we saw that second wave take over in December. So we had the Canadian government extend its border closures. Borders have been closed for more than a year. They ramped up COVID protocols for people entering the country, including mandatory COVID tests and mandatory hotel quarantines. But unfortunately, this just hasn't been enough, and the country is experiencing a third wave of virus cases that is threatening to close down more businesses once again. Since COVID hit here in Russia a year ago, like many around the world, I've been working from home. But for the majority of Russians, the stay-at-home mode lasted only a few months and some never even had it. President Vladimir Putin boasts that the economy shrank less than many of its peers. But he did impose a second major lockdown, and many industries continue working throughout the pandemic. Also, Russia's service sector is smaller than in other nations. So while it suffered, as people preferred to stay at home, it didn't drag the economy down as much as in other places. The Kremlin gets credit for giving support and even direct handouts to families with kids. But the measures are now winding down and businesses complain it wasn't enough. As a government, you can spend only so much, especially when you know that oil prices may take another dive or harsher sanctions may come, curtailing your ability to borrow. Russia is back to building its financial fortress, and you cannot do both, give lavish support and build a redoubt. But keeping things open and having fewer restrictions, it comes with a price. Russia's death toll was among the highest in the world last year. Incomes have fallen again. They're now 10% down from 2013. And a drop in the ruble and a spike in food prices have further deteriorated living standards. Russians who do have the money to spend have now picked up consumptions, so much that even it added to inflation pressure. The central bank got concerned and started raising rates earlier than expected. And those higher rates may cool off the recovery. Even where things are open, COVID is leaving its disconcerting mark. 
I went to a theater here in Moscow recently, and there was a mannequin sitting in every other seat, marking the separation. Actually, it was just the torso, with no arms and wearing a black turtleneck. It creeped me out, but then again, so many experiences are different now because of the pandemic. While we are looking at the performance, I thought that we, the spectators, were also quite a spectacle to see from the stage. A bunch of armless torsos and people wearing masks. From Moscow, I am Anya Andrianova, Bloomberg News. Now, we've heard quite a lot from reporters and economists in the past year on Stephanomics. But this week at a special Bloomberg work-shifting event, I interviewed someone in the unusual position of being not only a respected author and economist, but also on the board of two major global companies. Dr. Dambiza Moyo is on the board of Chevron and 3M. She's written many influential books on the global economy and has a new one out called How Boards Work. We're going to end this week's show with a few minutes of that conversation. What is the most pressing thing right now as we look for, you know, we've got optimism about the recovery, but also a a question mark about the future of uh, work-life balance, the future of cities, all these things. Where do you start if if you're a big global company? Well, first of all, I would just say that, um, you know, there's no doubt we're going to see a rebound this year. I mean, you've seen the Fed's new forecasts, um, look at China's forecast for growth this year. But I think we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that this is a fundamental recovery. We have not solved the debt problem that um, has gotten even bigger. So there's still a lot of structural challenges, uh, many structural challenges that we need to address. And we shouldn't think that we're out of the woods um, now that uh, aggregate demand will be back up. Um, But I think that to your specific question about what to me is the most important question is uh, really defining what a worker is. What is an employee? Um, What has become clear is that, um, you know, although on paper you could have 10,000 full-time employees, but you can very easily have 100,000 subcontractors. Um, During the pandemic, we had to, um, you know, as, as business leaders, understand that that delineation was a, was a falsehood. And I think as governments and, uh, and business leaders think about the uh, recovery and think about how digitization and remote working are going to become even more central to the discussion of who a worker is, um, I do think that this is the big issue. It, it leads to questions around mental illness, mental challenges, and who's going to pay for those costs. It leads to more stark Uh, brings into more stark relief the questions around retooling and reskilling workers in a world that we know is becoming more technical, technologically focused. And so, you know, who exactly are your workers? How do we define those workers? And what does that mean in terms of obligations for business leaders and for government, I think is really the central question. Is that something that companies have to decide for themselves in their individual case? Or is it something where you need, we need to be thinking about a whole new paradigm and that's governments in fundamentally setting the rules for that? 
Well, I think that government is becoming much more involved in some respects. Um, it, it's a little bit early days, but you know we're hearing from the SEC and other uh, regulatory bodies that they're interested in worker audits. Um, if you serve on boards and you've served on the audit committee of boards, you know that we already do a lot of capital audits. We're required to, um, to present financials every quarter. So there's a lot of emphasis on the capital allocation and capital re as a resource, um, but we haven't really uh, been guided by regulation and government in terms of workers. Um, you know, how do we define uh, worker productivity? What are the sort of things that we should be thinking about in terms of uh, worker uh, engagement and and enjoyment of being at, at the, in the workplace? And so those aspects are definitely things that regulators are thinking about. The SEC has been talking a lot about this, and I think that that's a place where government could lead. But you know, I will say, even if they don't, um, the reality is that corporations are responding to the general zeitgeist, the mood music of the way we, we are living now. And, and that is also pointing us in the direction of being much more thoughtful about workers um, and, and more generally stakeholders. And when we're talk, thinking about issues around work-life balance and the mental health of employees coming out of this, what are the, what are the watchwords for, for companies if they're trying to do the right thing Lots of companies are saying they don't really want people to be now staying at home, um, but uh, there's clearly a de demand from a lot of workers. How are you going to walk, walk, walk that line? So, Stephanie, I think the word that uh, or words that come to my mind are trade-offs. Um, I think one of the problems that uh, I see from the boardroom for pretty much any issue that we're dealing with, whether it's climate change pay equity, gender and racial diversity, aspects of worker advocacy, data privacy. I mean, you take your pick of these big issues that we're grappling with. Um, they all have trade-offs. And I love something that President Obama said, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but by the time something hit his, his inbox, it meant it was very difficult because if it were easy, somebody else would solve it. And that's very true for boardrooms as well. And of course, um, issues around workers as it falls squarely um, in that in that pile because we don't know what the answer is. On the one hand, we are very sensitive. There's heightened sensitivity around work-life balance for sure. But at the same time, there are targets and things that need to get done. Um, and very often that requires much more collaboration. And so having people work from home is not something that would, would be ideal, not just for the company's goals, but also for the individual's goals. There are some jobs and some tasks that require people to be in the office and their productivity increases um, uh, you know, in, a, in multiple forms um, by being in those spaces. If we sort of broaden the lens a bit that, that we have, uh, that we've a lot of the inequalities that were evident uh, before, but maybe perhaps more also slight, somewhat hidden behind the surface, have been unburied by, by COVID um, and would be harder to ignore, whether at a company level or a government level. How does a how can a company um, do the right thing um, on that, make sure that they're doing the right things under that banner of ESG rather than just being on a bandwagon? It's, it's a wonderful question. Um, we're getting pulled in different directions, and I'll give you an example in a moment. But the fundamental point is that we need all hands on deck to solve these problems. And, you know, it, you know, you hear about defunding energy companies. You hear about people, worker advocacy, lead, leaving uh, employees pitted against their employers. And, and yet, you know, this is, to me, it seems very short-sighted. Very quick example of this, there are 1.5 billion people who don't have access to energy in the planet today um, in a cost 
cost-effective, sustainable way. Um, and and you know, at, and at the same time, we're talking about defunding the energy companies who really are not only investing in a whole area of, of new green and clean um, alternatives. But also, um, we want more diversity in, uh, in institutions and organizations. Well, how will you get the diversity if you don't have this 1.5 billion people being educated? And so there are many aspects of this, to me, are not sophisticated enough in terms of the discourse. I was smiling slightly listening to you with some of your answers, because it strikes me as someone who started off writing about the challenges of development assistance and development aid. One finds again and again that the problems that you face there actually come are repeated uh, in, in advanced economies. Right, Stephanie, because ultimately it boils down to good intentions that generate bad outcomes. You're absolutely right. It's a very regular theme in our lives. And we end up with policies that actually not only are not solving the problem, but they're actually making things worse. And we are really trying to get ahead of that because we can do better. You know, it's that we can put a man on the moon. Why can't we solve these problems in a way that's equitable and sustainable? And it's deeply, uh, you know, very much at the core, as you just pointed out, of, of how I see the world. Dr. Dambisa Moyo, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. Glad to see you. So that's it for now. We'll be back with more next week. And in the meantime, I know you hear this a lot, but if you could take the time to rate the show, it would really help us to spread the word. And for more news and analysis during the week from Bloomberg Economics, just follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Javier Blas, Dr. Dabisa Moyo and Kylie Lambert. Lucy Meekin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. <laughs>